Hello and good morning, or afternoon, depending on when you're listening in. I'm Aria Princehorn. And I'm Erin Albers, and today we are wrapping up our podcast and one of the craziest college semesters with Chapter 12 of Alan Taylor titled Legacies. This chapter analyzes the aftermath of the American Revolution, all of the changes and developments to a growing American society, and the legacies we study today. The first section of this chapter is titled Culture. After the Patriots attained their autonomy from Great Britain, they were left to their own devices in creating an American identity. Reformers worried that each state was too different from one another and too British. In creating an American culture, reformers wished to establish a unified country reflecting a Republican society. Before the war, only elites had the opportunity to earn an education, specifically white men. However, self-education became a more important commitment for middle-class men and women who established private associations supporting schools and libraries. The middle class was able to strengthen and promote itself into a higher social standing through new developments such as education following the war. Unfortunately, the poorer classes did not gain much momentum in the hierarchy, even with education as a new Republican priority. Another development following the war was the expansion of the printing press. Since more people were were educated enough to read, newspapers and magazines boomed, creating a major influence in political elections. Unfortunately for the reformers, most Americans still preferred British fashions, furniture, art, books, and architecture. A Republican style was attempted in bringing more enlightenments to Republican culture, but ultimately fell short as most Americans favored accessibility rather than brilliance. Overall, an American identity was slowly developed after the war, but many British cultural formalities remained in place. The next section, titled Churches, analyzes the separation and coexistence of church and state. This section, in my opinion, was almost as messy as the war itself. Before the war, most colonial states wanted to have a government-supported religion paid for by taxes. Evangelical Protestantism was in opposition of this and in favor of promoting individual choice and faith. This appealed to many, especially after the war. A quote from Taylor, page 446, states, Evangelicals could draw on the revolution's legacy to challenge church establishments as anti-republican vestiges from the colonial era. The joint assaults of evangelism and republicanism validated a new conception of society as composed of individuals making free choices. I think this quote is very important because it proves how even though religion was not written into the constitution, it was still used as a government faction for spreading republicanism and the notion of an American nationality. It is also another way for the reformers to prove that they are nothing like the British as they allow for citizens to choose their own religion. Of course, there were other religions in America, such as Christianity, Catholicism, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, and Lutheran. However, most politicians associated themselves with the Evangelical Church, who also rejected the brutalities of the Revolution, which we now know patriots were trying to wipe that aspect of the war from public existence. This flock to religion created a unique religious culture in America, 
unlike any other country at the time. Of course, each major church still rejected people of color from joining, so they split off and created their own churches. This section is one of the more important ones, as religion was so intertwined into politics, even though politicians did not want to create a nationally accepted religion like Britain, they kind of did. This third section covers women and what changed for them after the revolution. Remember Abigail Adams who wrote in her famous letter to her husband John Adams asking him to remember the ladies after the Patriots won and drafting of the New Republic was underway? Well, John, you should have listened to your wife. During the war, women were left at home to take care of farms, shops, businesses, and all other matters since their husbands were away fighting. After the war, patriots did not want to credit women for their participation in holding down the fort at home. Women wanted to be acknowledged and no longer accepted the notion of feminine weakness and incapacity. The attitude towards women's roles did change, even if many were not accepting of it. Newspapers and magazines advocated to improve women's status. Schools were established, no longer teaching dancing and fine needlework, but English composition, history, geography, mathematics, and some political philosophy. Marriage relationships changed as well. A woman and her husband were seen as equals in a partnership. Although a woman's duties were still devoted to household affairs, and her husband remained in ownership of all their familial assets. On page 457, I end this section with the words of Abigail Adams. I will never consent to have our sex considered in an inferior point of light. Let each planet shine in their own orbit. God and nature designed it so. If man is Lord, woman is Lordess. That is what I contend for. The section titled Affections covers how family dynamics shifted after the war. Before, men were seen as the head of the house. His children and his wife responded to him as he provided and legally owned all properties. Younger men and women challenged the traditional patriarchal family structure, cultivating greater mutuality among their households. Many daughters were allowed to choose their spouse, which before the war, they did not have that choice. Republican ideals also pushed this mutuality between father, mother, and children, claiming that if there was not harmony, then chaos would ensue. This, to me, I found really interesting. It again illustrates the narrative that the elite were pushing that all of the colonies came together to fight against the British. The New Republic seems to me to have many subliminal meanings built into their ideals. Not all families, though, conform to this new standard, particularly in the South. More rural areas stuck to traditions upheld before the war. One particular case that really shocked me, Taylor mentions, was not everyone in colonial society accepting the new norms. Stephen Arnold, a school teacher, beat a six-year-old girl to death for not pronouncing a word correctly in class. He was set to be executed for murder, but was then sentenced to life in prison by displaying his sensibility to suffering celebrated by the new culture. Familial structures after the revolution became much more diverse, and personal relationships seem to have grown much stronger and more affectionate, moving away from the formal traditionality of what a family was. This last section that I will be covering is focused on slaves. Almost all colonists, even before the war, considered slavery as natural and immutable. 
Slaves were on the bottom of the social hierarchy in colonial society. The war presented a unique opportunity for many slaves to escape and join the British or the Continental Army, earning their freedom after the war. Unfortunately, only a handful were able to attain their freedoms. The core ideals of the revolution, attaining freedom, liberty, and equality from an oppressive government, left many to question the internal structures of slavery which had been so ingrained into society. Again, from Abigail Adams on page 467, truly a woman way ahead of her time, it always appeared a most inquisitive scheme to me to fight for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good right to freedom as we have. The revolution generated a pro-slavery argument for private property rights as an essential to liberty, and an anti-slavery or abolitionist movement on inalienable freedom and a natural equality for all. In the next section, titled Gradualism, Taylor continues the conversation of emancipation of slaves. Specifically, this section focuses on the attitudes of the northern states towards the emancipation of slaves. Most northern states gradually emancipated their slaves through laws designed to soften the blow for masters. No slave, if properly registered by a master, could become free until 1808. A slave born a day before the act remained enslaved for life. Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey adopted similar gradual emancipation laws, but reduced the age of freedom to 25 years for those born after the act became law. In northern states, gradual emancipation laws increased the freed black population from fewer than 1,000 in 1775 to nearly 50,000 in 1810, but the northern states still had 27,000 slaves that year because the gradual process of emancipation remained incomplete. White folk in both the northern and southern states grew increasingly uncomfortable with the growing number of the newly freed individuals. Therefore, unfortunately, they were banished into the poorest neighborhoods. By 1810, nearly a third of New York's black population lived in New York City, and two-fifths of Pennsylvania's lived in Philadelphia, though once again in the poorest neighborhoods of these cities. The next section, titled Manumissions, focuses on the southern states' attitudes towards the emancipation of slaves. Above everything else, Southern whites held on tight to slavery because they feared living beside thousands of newly freed blacks as they were concerned the newly freed would turn violent. Because of this, no Southern state legislature was able to adopt the same gradual emancipation approach the Northern states tried. In 1782, the Virginia legislature did liberalize the legal process of manumission by which an individual master could free slaves by a will or a deed. Famously among the manumitters was George Washington, who freed his slaves in his last will and testament at the time of his death. However, because most southern slave masters clung to slavery, those who partook in manumission faced social pressure from their peers to abandon this ideology. They insisted that freed blacks encourage slaves to resent and resist their masters. Southern whites also feared that those who were freed might threaten the slave system by leading a revolt. In hopes to appease the masses, Southern legislation required freed blacks to register with the court and obtain a certificate to display to any suspicious magistrate or slave patroller. The post-revolutionary manumissions increased the freed black population in Virginia from 2000 in 1782 to 20,000 in 1810. In the next section, Movement, we will see how people in America adapted to changes regarding the land. 
Patriots doubted that the Republic could survive if the inequality between the rich and the poor white men would increase. At this time, Virginia legislatures created laws of entail and primogeniture, which enabled a landowner to bind his heirs never to subdivide or alienate any part of a plantation, including its slaves. However, entails were abolished in 1776 and primogeniture in 1785. In 1796, the legislatures also eliminated entails on slaves. The division of great estates and the growth in sale and rental of slaves increased the number of slaveholders in Virginia. In the time after the revolution, there was an increase in the long-distance movement of slaves to frontier districts. Between 1790 and 1810, over 200,000 whites moved further south and west from the Chesapeake region. They brought along over 98,000 slaves. The conditions for the slaves were harder than ever due to rougher weather conditions and harder labor. Those who stayed in the Chesapeake region also sold more slaves to long-distance traders, who were then used in the lower south as cotton grew in demand. Forced migration and the domestic slave trade enhanced the opportunities of a common white family to buy a slave and move west to make new farms. The next section I will be covering details the importance and the upsurge of cotton production. Though a minor crop through the colonial era, cotton became profitable after the invention of the cotton gin in 1793. The cotton gin, invented by Eli Whitney, separated the cotton from their husk, making harvest easier for everyone. In South Carolina, exports of cotton skyrocketed from 9,840 pounds in 1790 to 6,425,000 pounds by the turn of the century. However, with the increase in cotton production also came harsher conditions for slaves. Now, slaves were treated as permanent with no chance of freedom. One slave in particular, David Ramsey, shared with a friend to the north, Experience proves that they who have been born and grow up in slavery are incapable of the blessings of freedom. In addition, political leaders in the Lower South renounced the universal natural rights and fundamental human equality ideas brought about by the revolution, as they claimed that these ideas were created solely for white men. Unfortunately, slavery did not wither away after the revolution as the patriots hoped it would. Instead, it became more powerful in the southern states. Between 1790 and 1860, slave traders and migrants moved over a million slaves south and west from the Chesapeake area. Due to the high profitability of plantation slaves, the capitalist development of the nation improved immensely. The South was a big contributor not only politically but also economically to the nation. Therefore, the increased productivity and demand for cotton and consequently the slaves drove the country into an economic boom. The final section of the Legacies chapter regards nature, human nature. After 1790, the economic growth of America aided in the superiority complex of America's Republican institutions and values. In addition, the idea of individualism reached an all-time high in America. After the Revolution, America became driven by the idea of individualism. Taylor details how only in America did most men think of themselves as lone actors making free choices that determine success or failure through profit. This ideology and eventual societal standards can be credited to the likes of prosperous white men who claimed that success proved their superiority over all others, the poor, women, indigenous peoples, and the black community. At the time, slavery fit nicely into the colonial idea of society as a hierarchy. 
However, once the Patriots challenged this concept, they waged a revolution for equal rights and private property rights. They vowed to create a society that broke down the social distinctions of birth that justified the hierarchy. Unfortunately, this new hope did not go smoothly. Pro-slavery individuals justified their choices by insisting that black racial inferiority was natural and immutable. They believed these individuals were only fit for slavery. Even the pioneer of all men are created equal drew racial lines. Though Jefferson denounced slavery, he argued that blacks were innately inferior to whites in their bodies and minds, so much for all men are created equal. In 1790, Congress passed the first American naturalization law, which allowed white immigrants to be granted citizenship but barred black people. In other words, having white skin allowed you to be considered a citizen, but having black skin excluded you from a seemingly basic human right. Despite it all, abolitionists and feminists persisted in breaking the status quo. Later in the 19th century, Americans reworked the legacy of the revolution to fight for the abolishment of slavery and extend political rights to women in the black community. Despite the hope for a perfect tomorrow, Taylor argues that no generation will ever settle the revolution once and for all. He states that historians have debated and will continue to debate how revolutionary the Revolutionary War actually was. While some say that little changed from the colonial era to the post-revolutionary era, others emphasize how economic opportunities expanded and how political participation increased because of the revolution. Taylor, on the other hand, believes that the revolution intensified trends already underway, including political assertion by common men, territorial expansion at native expense, and the westward spread of slavery. The American Revolution began as a constitutional crisis during the 1760s when colonists discovered that they faced restrictions and taxes from a centralizing empire. The revolution validated rapid expansion but failed to settle what sort of society ultimately would take shape in the West. To wrap up our podcast, we will ask a few questions open for discussion. What changes that occurred in the New Republic are still active parts of American society today? Are we currently in or on the brink of a second revolution? Is it possible to alter modern American remembrance of the American Revolution without creating a culture shock to fit a more accurate representation of the war? Will systematic racism ever end? And finally, the big brain teaser, was the Revolutionary War really revolutionary? Thank you so much for joining us on this final chapter to round out our year. We hope all of you have a Merry Christmas and a much needed break. Stay safe and have a great day.